Hey, this is Craig Cannon, and you're listening to Y Combinator's podcast. Today's episode is with Murray Shannon, who is one of the scientific advisors on Ex Machina. Murray's a research scientist at DeepMind and professor of cognitive robotics at Imperial College London. He's also the author of several books, one of which is called Embodiment in the Inner Life, and it served as inspiration for Alex Garland while he was writing the screenplay for Ex Machina. All right, here we go. So I think the I think the first question I wanted to ask you is that given the popularity of AI or at least the interest in AI right now, mm. what was it like when you were doing your the, your PhD thesis in the eighties around AI? Yeah, well, very different. I mean, it, it's uh, it's quite a surprise for me to find myself in this current position where everyone in everyone is interested in what I'm doing. The media are mm-hmm. interested. You know, corporations are interested. Um, so certainly, when I was a PhD student and when I was a a, a young postdoc it was a fairly niche area so you could just kind of like beaver away in your in your little little kind of corner doing things that you thought were intellectually interesting and 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 being reasonably secure that you weren't going to be bothered by anybody but not like it's not like that anymore no and and so what what exactly was the subject matter at the time what were you working on Uh, at at the time when i did my thesis yeah uh, uh well i worked on um uh how you could use oh this is a tr- this is a tricky question yeah, I know you're, you're asking, this is this is uh, you're asking me to go back uh, <laughs> like let me think what is it like 30 something years yeah uh, 30 something years yeah 30 years i finished 30 years ago i finished my thesis um okay so what did it look at so i was interested in logic programming mm-hmm. uh and prolog type languages uh and i was interested in how you could speed up um, answering queries in in prolog like languages by keeping a kind of record of the thread of relationships between uh, facts and theorems that you'd already established. Mm-hmm. So so instead of having to redo all the computations from scratch, it kind of kept a little collection of the uh, relationships between properties that you'd already worked out mm-hmm. so that you didn't have to redo the same computations over again so that was the main th- contribution of the thesis i'm amazed i can that, remember that's, anything that's about very it. impressive uh, i did my yeah. thesis like five years ago and i barely remember <laughs> <laughs> um and and so did you pursue that further at Imperial? no no okay. i didn't i i kind of um well one other thing that i discussed in my uh, uh in my thesis um was i had a whole chapter on the frame problem so the frame problem uh is there, there are different ways of characterizing it, but the frame problem in its largest guise is all about how, uh, how a thinking mechanism or thinking creature or, or a thinking machine, if you like, um, can work out what's relevant and what's not relevant to its, to its ongoing cognitive processes and, and, and how it isn't overwhelmed by having to rule out just trivial things that aren't irrelevant. Um, and, uh, uh, so that comes up in a particular guise when you're using logic mm-hmm. and when you're using logic to think about actions and their effects. And and there you want to make sure that you don't have to spend a lot of time thinking about the non-effects of actions. So, mm-hmm. for example, uh, if I if I uh, move around a bit of the equipment like your microphone here, then the color of the walls doesn't change. Mm-hmm. And and you, you don't want to have to th- explicitly kind of think about all those kinds of trivial things. So that's one aspect of the frame problem. But then more generally, it's all about sort of circumscribing what is relevant to your current situation and what you need to think about and, and what isn't. Mm. And so how did that translate to what folks are working on today? Well, so it's actually, um, uh, it, so this thing, the frame problem has has recurred throughout my career so although there's been a lot of variation in what i've done and i've so i worked for a long time in classical artificial intelligence which is there it's all about it was and and still is all about um using logic-like or sentence-like um representations uh, of of the world and and uh, you have mechanisms for reasoning about those sentences and rule-based a rule-based approach Mm -hmm. and um so that approach of classical ai has fallen out of favor a little bit and i sort of got a bit disillusioned with it back in uh well a long time ago (laughs) uh sort of so so i I, by by kind of the turn of the millennium i'd more or less abandoned classical ai because i didn't think it was moving it moving towards what we now call agi artificial general intelligence the big vision of human level ai Mm -hmm. um and so I thought, well, I'm going to study the brain instead, because that's a, the example that we have of an intelligent 
thinking thing. It's the perfect example. So, um, so I want to try and understand the brain a bit more. So I started working on building computational neuroscience style models of the brain and thinking about the brain from a, a larger kind of perspective and thinking about consciousness and the architecture of the brain and big questions. And, mm-hmm. um, uh, and now I'm getting around to answering your question, mm-hmm. by the way, eventually, but now I'm interested in, um, in machine learning. There's, there's been this resurgence of interest in machine learning. So I've kind of moved back to some of my interests in, in, uh, artificial intelligence. And I'm not thinking so much about the brain or neuroscience or that kind of empirical work right now. And I've gone back to some of the old themes that I was interested in, in good old fashioned AI, classical AI. So that's sort of an interesting trajectory. Actually, the frame problem, interestingly, is, has been a recurring theme throughout all of that stuff and it, because it keeps on coming up in one guise or another. So in, in classical AI, there was the question of how can you write out a set of sentences that represent the world where you don't have to write out a load of sentences that uh, encompass a lot of trivial things that are irrelevant. And um, and somehow the brain seems to solve that as well. The brain seems to manage to um, focus or, and, and attend to only what's relevant to the current situation and ignore all of the rest. Mm. And in contemporary machine learning, um, there's also this kind of issue as well. There's also a challenge of being able to build systems, especially if you start to th- to, to rehabilitate some of these ideas from symbolic AI. Mm-hmm. Um, you want to think about how you can build systems that that uh, focus on what's relevant uh, in the current situation and ignore things that are not. For example, if you in, in if if a lot of this a lot of work here at DeepMind has been done with these Atari retro sure. uh, um, computer games. So if you think of a, a, a retro computer game like Space Invaders, then um, then if you think about the the little invader going across the screen, it doesn't really matter what color it is. In fact, it doesn't really matter actually what shape it is either. What really matters is that it's kind of dropping bombs, and uh, and you need to get out of the way of these things. <laughs> so 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 so, in a sense, a really smart yeah. uh, a really smart system would learn that it's not the color that matters, it's not the shape that matters, it's these little shapes that fall out of the thing that matter, and mm. and so that's all that's all about kind of working out what's relevant and what's not relevant to the to 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 solving getting a good score in the game sorry for the interruption everyone we just got to see gary kasparov talk uh it's pretty amazing yeah that was fantastic wasn't it yeah yeah yeah. so Uh, gary kasparov in conversation with demis hasabis um yeah he gave a great talk about uh the history of uh of his of computer chess and uh you know his famous match with with deep blue so yeah we just had to pop upstairs to watch that right and, uh, so now it's part two yeah kind of one of those once in a lifetime things it also seems like he got out at the exact right time yeah maybe yes he did yeah yeah so so uh demis uh at the beginning of the interview said that uh, um said that uh said that he thought that he was perhaps the greatest chess player of all time and so he he was there just at the right time to be knocked out by a computer in a way yeah not knocked off the top spot very cool yeah and he also said that um uh, maybe maybe accurately that your any iphone chess player now is probably better mm, than deep blue than was deep in, blue in 1997 yeah yeah which is interesting yeah i, I also thought it was interesting the way he was saying that just anybody in their living room now can sit and watch Two grandmasters playing a uh, playing a, a match and can use their computer to see as soon as they make a mistake and can analyze the match and can follow exactly what's going on. Yeah. Whereas in the past, it took you know expert commentators sometimes days to figure out what was going on when two great players were playing. So yeah. that, was, that was interesting. What struck me was how he um, how he was kind of analyzing the current players and how they relied so heavily on the computer, or at least he thinks they rely so heavily on the computer that they're kind of like reshaping their mind. Right. Yeah. And that certainly, I think is going to be true with Go and with, uh, with AlphaGo. So, um, uh, so it, it's been interesting watching the reactions of the, of the, you know, top Go players yeah. uh, like Lisa Doll and KJ, um, uh, who are, who are very positive in a way about the, uh, the impact of computers, uh, on, on, on the game of Go. And, and they talk about how, you know, how AlphaGo and, and programs like it can help them to explore parts of this universe of Go that they would never otherwise have been able to visit. And, uh, and so it's, it's, you know, it's really interesting to hear them speak that way. Yeah. It seems like they're going to open up 
just kind of new territories for new kinds of games to actually be created. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. Well, so we've already seen that with uh, with AlphaGo in the in the match with Lisa Doll. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, as you probably know, there was a, there was a famous move in the second match against Lisa Doll, move thirty seven, where where all the commentators, all these sort of nine dan masters, <laughs> were saying saying, "Oh, this is a mistake. What's what's AlphaGo doing? And this is very strange." And and then they sort of gradually came to realize that this was a, a sort of revolutionary kind of tactic to put hmm. the stone in that particular rank in that particular time in the in the game and since then um uh, the top go players have been exploring this this kind of this kind of play about moving into that sort of territory of um, when the conventional wisdom was that you shouldn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean the augmentation in general I find fascinating across the board. Yeah. And I think he was hinting that as well. Yeah, he was. Yeah, so he was was uh, uh very positive about the prospects of human machine partnerships and where humans provide maybe a creative element and machines yeah. can be more analytical and and so on. What what was that law that he mentioned? I I forgot the name of it. I wrote it down. Oh, uh, Morovec's law. Yeah, 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 named after Hans Morovec, uh, so the uh, uh, uh roboticist who who wrote uh, some amazing books. Um including mind children so he wrote this book called okay. mind children and uh and this this phrase mind children alludes to the possibility that that we might create these artifacts that are that are like children of our mind and uh that they have sort of lives of their own and they are the, the children of our minds you know it's a challenging idea That's this is an old book i mean go from from the late 80s okay do you buy it um uh i, I Maybe in the distant future. <laughs> okay. Well, th- then maybe we ought to we ought to segue back into what we were talking about, which is kind of related to your book, your uh, two books ago, Embodiment and the Inner Life. Yeah, yeah, which which came out in twenty ten. Okay, um, because that was that was kind of an integral question to the movie Ex Machina, right? Yeah. Because you you didn't necessarily have to have a person like AI, and more importantly, you didn't have to have an AI that sort of looked like a person that sort of looked like an attractive female that also looked like a robot, right? Yeah, they, yeah. they tee it up in the beginning. Nathan tees it up in the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I mean, obviously, um, uh, a cert- to a certain extent, those are things that make for good film. Sure. And so yeah. they're, they're, they're artistic choices and cinematographic choices and, um, and uh, I mean, in the film, her, we actually have, of course, a, of course, a disembodied AI. And so it's possible to make, a film out of disembodied artificial intelligence as well, but but obviously a lot of the plot and what drives the plot forward in Ex Machina is to do with Ava's embodiment mm-hmm. and and the fact that um, uh, that Caleb is attracted to her and and uh, and, and sympathizes and empathizes with her, um, and um, but there's also a kind of a philosophical side to it too, which is certainly. Um, certainly, I think that it well, no doubt, when it comes to human intelligence and human consciousness. Our physical embodiment is a huge part of that. It's mm-hmm. it's uh, in it's it's where our intelligence originates from. Because what we what what our brains are really here to do is to help us to navigate and manipulate this complex world of of objects in three D space and um, and and that uh, is is so our embodiment is an essential fact here. We have got we've got these hands uh, that we that we use to manipulate objects and um and when we've got legs that enable us to move around in the, in, in complicated mm-hmm. spaces and so uh, that's in a sense is what our brains are originally for the biological brain is to is there to make for smarter movement mm-hmm. and all of the rest of intelligence is a flowering out of that in a way and so did you buy the um the the gel that he showed Caleb in the beginning Oh yeah, they so 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 that it's interesting because um, the way the film is is constructed is that so Alex Garland, you know the writer and director, so he uh, uh, sometimes says that the film is set ten minutes into the future. It's <laughs> okay. just you know it's like a really meant to be like really a lot like our world, yeah, just very slightly into the future, yeah. And so when you see the um, uh, uh, you know uh, Nathan's lair, his mm-hmm. uh, his his sort of retreat in the in the wilderness it's there's nothing particularly science fictiony about that it's designerish and of course it is in fact a real hotel in uh, uh, or a real uh, you can actually go and stay really? in, this, in this place where yeah. is it uh, in norway um 
and um uh, so so it, it, so it, it you know it, it doesn't have a particularly futuristic feel and m- almost everything you see is not very futuristic it's not like star wars but then there are a few things a few carefully chosen things that look very futuristic and they're ava's body so the way you can see uh, you know the sort of the insides of mm. of her torso and um and her head and then when he shows um the the brain which is made of this uh, uh this gel and so I, I think that was a good choice because we don't at the moment know how to make things that are like ava that have that kind of level of artificial intelligence mm-hmm. so that's the, the the point at which you have to go sci-fi really <laughs> well i mean those like lifelike melding elements do, have you watched the new show on the hbo show is it westworld uh, do you know I haven't? No, oh, really? I mean I, I, yeah, I really, um, uh, it really is on my to watch list because, uh, but I've heard a lot about a lot about it. Yeah, because they, they definitely I remember the original with Yul Brynner, but, <laughs> <laughs> but I haven't watched the um, uh, the series, the current series. Yet. Yeah, yeah, they definitely take cues. I mean, I guess it's it's probably like in the sci fi canon that you have this basement layer where the, you create the robots and then they become lifelike through this whole process. Even if you yeah. just watch kind of a, the opening title credits, it's exactly that. It's like the very, the 3D printed sinews of the muscles. Mm. It looks exactly like uh, Nathan's lair. And so what I was wondering is, um, as you were consulting on the show, how much of that were they asking you about? And were they saying like, uh, is this like remotely 10 minutes in the future or is this 50 years in the yeah. future? Well, it wasn't really like that, actually. Okay. I mean, I'll tell you the sort of whole story of of, of how the, the, uh, yeah. the, the how the kind of uh, collaboration came about. or how, how, how. So um, so I, I got this email from uh, Alex Garland, you know, unsolicited email out of the blue. It's the kind of unsolicited email you really want to get yeah. from, you know, famous <laughs> writer, director who wants you to work on a science fiction film. Um, and uh, he he basically said, oh, I I read your book Embodiment in the in the Inner Life, and it uh, helped me to kind of crystallize some of the ideas about this around this script that I'm writing for a film about AI and consciousness. And you know, do you want to uh, get together and have a chat about it? So I didn't have to think very hard sure. yep. about that. And um, so uh, so we got together and had lunch, and um, uh, and he sent me the script, and so I'd read through the script by the time I I, I got to see him. Um, and, uh, and he really, he, he certainly wanted to know whether it sort of felt right from the standpoint of somebody working in the field. Um, and, um, and I have to say it really did. There was, there was nothing, I mean, it was, as a script, it was a great page turner, actually, because it, it's, it's interesting being in that position because now, um, ex machina and the image of Ava has become kind of iconic and, mm. and, uh, you know, you see it everywhere. <clears throat> and, um, but, uh, but of course, when I read the script, all of that imagery didn't exist. And yeah. so I was reading it. Yeah. I had to kind of conjure it up in my own head. And so, so I, he didn't give you any kind of preview of what he was thinking aside uh, from text. In, 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 so the, no, because the, nothing had been, nobody had been cast then, uh, uh, at that point. And I think, uh, actually when we met up, uh, if I, if my memory serves me right, Right. He did have a few. Uh, he did have some images of some mock-ups that okay. from artists of 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 what Ava might look like. Yeah. Uh, but I hadn't seen it when I'd read the script. Sure. So okay. so for me, it was just kind of the script. And and the characters really leapt off the page. I, the, the character of Nathan in particular was was really very vivid. And yeah. um, uh, and you know you really didn't like this guy. Um, <laughs> you know, just reading the script. Yeah. Um, anyway, so um, so then Alex really wanted to. Uh, so, so I, so I, I sort of gra- grabbed the title of scientific advisor. I'm not sure if I ever really was officially, you know, <laughs> a scientific advisor. But, but, um, but Alex really wanted to meet up and talk about yeah. these ideas. He wanted to talk about consciousness and about AI. And um, so we met up several times during the course of the filming. And uh, and I, I, I think there's very little that I contributed to the film at that point. In, in a sense, perhaps I'd already done my main bit by writing, by the, writing book, the book. The, 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 yeah. Um, I mean, there were a few little phrases that I that I I uh, corrected, tiny, tiny things. But otherwise, I just I just thought, you know, oh, great, you know, gosh, <laughs> really, really, very good. And there's some there are some lines in the film that I just thought were so spot on. Anything uh, you remember in like what line in particular? Yeah, well, I mean, so so a favorite one is where um, where. Uh, Caleb. Well, so so initially Caleb is told that he's there to be the human component in a Turing test, and of course it isn't the Turing test. But you know, and he and Caleb says that pretty quickly. He says, "Well, look, you know, so in the real Turing test, 
the the uh, the judge doesn't see whether it's a human or a, or a machine and and so on. But of course, I can see that you know Ava's a robot and. And Nathan says, "Oh yeah, we'll, we're way past that. The whole point here is to show you that she's a robot and see if you still feel she has consciousness." Mm-hmm. And I thought that that was so spot on. I thought that was an excellent, really an excellent point, making a very important philosophical point in you know in this one little line in the middle of a psychological thriller, which mm-hmm. is pretty pretty cool. So I call that the Garland test. Oh. Um, uh, so uh, I, I found it very like yeah, that was really astute. I was wondering like which which texts influenced him most when he was writing it, um, and, and in particular like where you found that your your work had seeds like planted throughout the movie. Yeah, um, where do you think it was most influential? Well, it's a good question. You yeah. you know you, you you need to ask him. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Um, so um, so certainly the so so my book is very heavily influenced by Wittgenstein, and and in a sense uh, Wittgenstein is all about. Um, when it comes to these deep philosophical questions, it's very, in, in, in a sense, it's very down to earth. It's mm. always it's saying, well, what do we mean by consciousness and intentionality and you know all these kind of big difficult, uh, difficult words? And, and Wittgenstein is always taking a step back and saying, well, what are the role of these words in ordinary life? And the role of these words in ordinary life with, with something like consciousness is all to do with you know the actual behavior of the people we see in front of us. And so you know, in, in a sense, I I judge others well i don't actually go around judging others as conscious that's a point that he would make as well it's just i just naturally treat them as conscious Mm -hmm. and so why do i naturally treat them as conscious because their behavior is such that that's that they're just like fellow creatures and i just do and that's just what you do when you Mm -hmm. encounter a fellow creature you don't think carefully about it and um so this is an important wittgensteinian point that i bring out in the in the book very much and um and in a sense, that's very much what happens to Caleb. So Caleb doesn't, you know, isn't sort of sitting making notes saying, therefore she sure. is conscious. Yeah. But rather, through interacting with her, he just gradually comes to feel that she is conscious just to, and to start treating her as, as, as conscious. Mm. And so, so that's a very, I've, there's something very Wittgensteinian about that. And then I think probably that comes from, uh, I'd like to think that comes <laughs> from my book to an extent. Well, I had never, um, I get it seems very cinematic that it would be like over the course of a week the the Turing test, but I had never seen a Turing test framed that way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess it's not a, you know it's a Garland test, but um, it, did you did you coach him in any way of like the the natural steps that someone would take as it as the test elevates? No, not at all. No, this is all Alex Garland's yeah. stuff. I had I had no uh, uh, input on that side at all. So the script was already. And the, and and the plot was already the, the whole script was already you know ninety five percent really okay. um, you know uh, done you know when uh, uh, when I first saw it so okay. um, uh, so there are a few differences in the final film from what you see in the in the script that I saw and indeed in the in the publish so that was actually that was a question from Twitter um, this is kind of a uh, seemingly a pseudonym on Twitter uh, someone trench shovel uh, they asked. Uh, were there any parts of the script that were changed or left out because they weren't technically feasible or realistic? Ah, well, um, well, so there was a bit that was uh, in the script that was uh, that was left out in the final filming, which, uh, which uh-huh. I think is very significant. Okay, um, and um, so so right, so spoilers ahead for the ferret, for the few people. I assume if you're listening to this, you've Hopefully. seen the film. <laughs> um, so right at the end of the film, where. Ava is climbing into the helicopter, having mm-hmm. escaped from the compound, and she's about to kind of fly off. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she and we see her have a few words with a helicopter pilot, and uh, you know, I wonder what she says. Actually, yeah, you know, that's interesting. But uh, just fly me away from here. <laughs> um, anyway, and then off the off the, the off the helicopter goes. Now, in the written script, there's a there's an instruction uh, there, uh, which says something along the lines, uh, "Oh, we see." Uh, you know, the, we see uh, waveforms and we see the you know, facial recognition vectors fluttering across the screen, and we see this, that, and the other, and uh, and it uh, and it's utterly alien. This is how Ava sees the world. Right? Mm. It's utterly alien, and um, uh, and now in the end, I, so so the very first um, version of the film that I saw was long before all the. Was before all the VFX had been properly done and everything, so it was a first 
crude cut. And they had, uh, they put sort of this scene and they started, they put a little bit of this kind of visual effects in. And then I think they decided that this didn't really work terribly well to, to do that at that point. So they, they kind of cut it out. So in the version that we see, you don't actually see that, that you just see her speaking to the helicopter pilot and she climbs into the helicopter. But it's very, it's a very significant direction because, you know, we're left, uh, I mean, I think one of the great strengths of the film is that it leaves so many unanswered questions. You know, you don't really, you're left thinking, is she really conscious? You know, <laughs> yeah. is, you know, does she really, is she really capable of suffering? Is, is, is she just a kind of machine that's gone horribly wrong? Or is she a, a person who's, who's, understandably had to had to do commit this act of violence in order to save herself you know which of these is it and you never really quite know and um uh although i think people are leaning more towards the kind of oh she's conscious in a straightforward kind of way then that's the but uh, but that that uh version of the ending yeah. um just points to the fact that there's a real ambiguity there because if that had been shown you might be leaning more the other way you might be thinking mm, gosh you know this this is a very alien creature indeed, and uh, and and she still might be really genuinely conscious and genuinely capable of suffering. But it would it would really throw open the kind of question, uh, you know, how alien is she? And to me, that that would also so just so I understand, it was it was a VFX over the actual image, right? Well, I mean, it doesn't in the, in the script it doesn't specify uh, exactly how it to be. Uh, how it will be done so it just says something like we see you know facial recognition vectors fluttering and we and i can't remember the exact words but gotcha. it, but, but the it was um um uh, you know the obviously the idea was to give an impression of what things looked like and sounded like for Ava in some sense which okay. of course is very in a sense is impossible to convey but you just have to would we would I think maybe yeah. that's why they've they they thought how do we how would we do this and well I didn't know if they were also trying to avoid some kind of I guess it's not really like a fourth wall but it's also trying to um trying to avoid the situation where they the author or uh the auteur of the Alex right of the movie is saying like we're in a simulation like this is what you're seeing yeah. as you are the mind of some an artificial intelligence. Yes, well I think it was meant to be shown from her point of view. So for, so right. um so that wouldn't have been an an interpretation of it if they got it right, I would imagine. So maybe but you know, I don't know why exactly they decided <laughs> not to put it in, but 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 it's just the fact that that that, that direction is there in the script. And yeah. um, by the way, that's in the published script. So I'm not giving oh. any I'm not giving anything away uh, okay. here. Um but there is the the published version of the script has this little direction in it. Yeah. Yeah, I, I rewatched it. Yeah, I rewatched it last night, and I, I remembered the ending. I was like, it, "It's so vague." Yeah, it's yeah, so vague yeah. what happens, and yeah, I do. I do remember because I I quite like that ambiguity. Yeah, you know, the, where you just you don't really know. Really, uh, you know, is she conscious at all? Is she conscious just like we are? Is she conscious in some kind of weird alien way? You never really know, and it's a this is a deep philosophical question. Hmm. And there's also the, there's a moment where right at the end where she's coming down the stairs, having escaped basically. She's coming down the stairs at the top floor of of Nathan's compound, and she smiles. She does that. She goes up the stairs, kind of looks back, and surveys. Yes, and she yes, smiles. and she smiles. Yeah. And and I remember saying to Alex, I said, I don't, I don't think you should have that. After I'd seen the first version, I said, I don't think you should have that smile there because it's it's too human, <laughs> you know. And uh, and 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 you know, and he he was uh, uh, you know really thought it was important to have the smile there because because uh, I think he would he would say yeah. Uh, so so I think he I think Alex would. I don't want to put words in his yeah, mouth, yeah, yeah. so I, I apologize to Alex if he's listening to this. <laughs> but I think uh, yeah, he would he would say that people, of course can have their own interpretations and that's of course that's you know but he would probably uh lean towards the interpretation that she is conscious in the way that we are and the evidence for that is well why would anybody smile to themselves privately if they weren't conscious in the just like we are so. mm. and what else um in those conversations you know you're, you're watching edits of the movie what else did you guys work through uh well so there's the easter egg yeah that's I, a good one yeah we tell should you talk the about story that. of the easter egg yeah so um so the first um uh, time i saw any uh you know any kind of clip of ex machina as uh, alex sent me an email and um and said well do you want to come in and see a see a bit of ex machina you know we could it's in the can, uh, as they, as these film people say. Um, although there are no cans anymore for the for the film to go in, but um, uh, so come and see a kind of like you know come to the cutting room. So 
Um, so I went along and uh, and he showed me some uh, some scenes. And at one point, he kind of stopped the uh, stopped the machine mm-hmm. and um, and uh, he said, and this is the moment where uh, Caleb is reprogramming the security system in order to release all the locks to try and get out. And uh, and so Alex froze the frame there and said, "Ah, oh, right now you see these computer screens where." Caleb is typing into these computer screens and he said, you see this window here? Now this window, it's all full of kind of some junk code at the moment. Yeah. You know? And it says, you, but you can be sure there are going to be, there are going to be some geeky types out there who the moment this thing comes out on a DVD, they're going to freeze that frame and they're going to say, what does this do? This thing, this thing. Yeah. So let's give them an Easter egg. <laughs> so let's give them a, uh, let's give them, you know, uh, yeah, a little surprise. Yeah. So he said, so he said that basically you said that window is yours, put something in there and some kind of hidden message. And he said, maybe make it an, an allusion to your book. Mm. Um, so I went, so I thought, this is very cool. You know? I mean, this is the best product placement ever, ever, you know. I, 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 I've, I've probably sold one other copy, thanks. To that <laughs> um, uh, so I went home that, that evening. Yeah. And I made the mistake that evening of buying a bottle of sake. And I, and I was drinking this sake. I said, what am I going to do for this? And I got, got down po- coding some, coding something up in, in, in Python. And I was having a good laugh at what I was going to do. So I, I, I thought, okay, it's got to be vaguely kind of to do with security. So, and, and encryption. So let's have something that kind of, um, has some primes in it. So I, I wrote this little piece of, um, the Siva Veritostenes, a classic way of computing primes. Okay. I wrote this, so instead of kind of getting off Wikipedia or something, I sat there and coded it myself after four, after four glasses of sake. And, uh, and I was coding this thing up and, um, and then basically it computes a big array of prime numbers. And then there's this thing that indexes into the prime numbers and then adds some random looking other numbers to the numbers that it's, and then those are ASCII characters. And then it prints out, the, what those ASCII characters actually look like. Okay. So when you look at this code on the screen, it's just gobbledygook, but something to do with prime numbers. If you run it, it prints out ISBN equals and the ISBN of my book, Embodiment in the Inner Life. Anyway, so that was very, so I was very, <laughs> ple- very, pl- was very pleased with this going on. I handed it over to them and they put it in the, in the, in the thing. But, but, uh, I have to say, Alex was wrong. It wasn't when the DVD came out that, uh, that, that, oh no, it only had to be on BitTorrent for 24 hours. Long before the DVD came out, before there was there was pages about this thing uh, on the internet. So there was a whole Reddit thread. Oh, yeah. um, there's a GitHub repository with my piece of code, and there's a uh, uh, the Reddit thread includes a whole lot of criticism about my coding style. It's not Pep Eight compliant. Oh, I and, uh, yeah, it's like, really funny, and it's true. It's really true. But but what I really regret was that the loop I I put the wrong terminating condition on oh, the no. loop instead of, you know you can terminate uh, the the sieve of Eratosthenes after n squared you don't have to go all the way to n over 2 but for some reason i wasn't paying attention four glasses of sake and it, i put you know and it terminates after n over 2 and so it's inefficient you know uh, we'll let it <laughs> maybe that's the bug in her code and it'll always uh, be broken. Maybe. Well, it's not a bug. It's just, I mean, it's give, me some, give me some credit. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's not actually a bug. I mean, it does meet the specification, but, uh, Fair enough. but it's not efficient. Fair enough. Uh, yeah. we, we should ask some of these questions from Twitter. Yeah, I know sure, people yeah. are very excited to uh, to ask you questions. So uh, so we already asked one. So um, Patrick Atwater, let's get to his question. This is, um, okay, so this is, we should, uh, so Craig, ask how much closer we are to the sort of general Hollywood style AI uh, now than we were in the 50s. In the fifties, so well, I, I think what he's alluding to is the the flying car, you know, p- pastel version. Like it's kind of the the crazy futuristic version of the AI in the fifties. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then the AI that they're portraying in the movie. Well, I can tell you that we're precisely sixty years closer than we were in the fifties. <laughs> um, but I don't think that's the kind of answer that, uh, no. that, that, that we can tweet them. Though. Um, so, well, of course, you have to remember that in Ex Machina, as in all films the way that ai is portrayed you know really a lot of it is to do with making a good film and yeah. making a good story and i mean in particular uh, people love stories where you know where the ai is some kind of enemy nemesis and, and so on actually gary kasparov who we just heard speak made a very interesting point didn't he about this he mm-hmm. said that there's uh, that there's been a kind of, he pointed out and i think he's right that there's been a kind of change from very positive views in science fiction of utopian we're going to views where we're going to kind of get to the stars and to more dystopian views of things where it's you know like the terminator and so on 
Um, but anyway, it certainly makes for a good story if your if your AI is uh, uh, you know is bad. Mm. Um, and it also makes for a good story if your AI is embodied and if your AI is very human-like. Mm-hmm. And, um, and and whereas in reality, you know, AI, uh, insofar as it's going to get more and more sophisticated and, and closer and closer to human-level intelligence, it's not necessarily going to be human-like. So uh, it's not necessarily going to be in embodied in a, in robotic form. Or if it is embodied in robotic form, it might not be in humanoid form. So in a sense, a self-driving car is a kind of perfect robot. Yep. Um, so I think that things, uh, you know, will be a bit different from the way they seem, uh, the way they, that Hollywood has portrayed them. Yeah. And of course, if you go back to the 50s, and if we, I mean, it's very interesting to look at retro science fiction. I love retro science fiction. You look at something like The Forbidden Planet, then, then Robbie, of course, in The Forbidden Planet is this metal hunk thing, you know, which is completely impractical. And, um, uh, and you're thinking, how would it get around at all? And how would it do anything with these kind of claw arms that it's, uh, and, and hands that it, that it's got? Um, so clearly we've changed a lot in our view of what we think we can, the kinds of bodies we think that we might be able to make in the in And the I think it's also quite difficult because there's, there's not really a clear benchmarking happening right now that it's because it's not obvious. It was, if it was just like, you know, energy and compute going into this, mm-hmm. then the race would be, I mean, it wouldn't be over, but it would be very obvious as who's winning and what's going on Yeah, where there, it seems to be that there are clear breakthrough breakthroughs that have to happen. Yeah, that's certainly my my view. So, if, so if we're thinking about now the question of when might we get to human level AI, yeah, or artificial gen, general intelligence, then um, I think we really don't know. And as certainly some people can, you know, you you can draw graphs uh, that extrapolate computing power and the sort of uh, the how fast the world's fastest supercomputers are, and 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 you know we're we're pretty close to. Well, depending on how you mm-hmm. calculate it, we're pretty close to human brain scale computing already in the world's fastest supercomputers, mm-hmm. and we will get there within the next uh, couple of years. Um, but that doesn't mean to say we know how to build human level intelligence. That's an altogether different thing. And also, there's controversy about how you make that calculation as well. I mean, do you, you know, do you how what do you count? Uh, do you count a neuron? How do you count the computational power of one neuron and or one synapse? And and some people. You know, it may be that some of the immense complexity in the in the synapse mm-hmm. in, uh, is is functionally irrelevant. It's just you know, it's chemically important and so on, but it might be functionally irrelevant to cognition. Mm-hmm. So we really there's a lot of open questions there. But even if we allow uh, kind of uh, a conservative estimate and we assume that that we're going to have enough computing power that's equivalent, the computing power that's equivalent to that of the human brain by say 2022 or something or 2020. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we still would need to understand exactly how to use all of that computing power to realize intelligence. And I think there are probably an unknown number of conceptual breakthroughs between here and, and there. Yeah. I mean, specific AI absolutely happening, but this general oh, yeah. AI that he's talking about. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, um, uh, so, so yeah, so clearly there's lots of specialist artificial intelligence where, yeah. where we're getting really good at things like image recognition and image understanding yeah. is and and speech so speech recognition has more or less been cracked um the they're just the process of turning the weight raw waveform into uh, text um into so that that's been cracked but then again under real understanding of the words that's a whole other story and um and while today's personal assistants you know it can be are quite cool and they're going to get better and better they're still a way off displaying any genuine understanding of the words that are being being used i think that will happen you know in due course but but uh but we're not quite there yet yeah i mean fortunately or unfortunately (laughs) um because that also that underlies one of the other questions that i that i did want to ask so this is from uh i think mecca and mecca floss on twitter um so their question is excellent movie but why is asimov's law forgotten um that would be the absolute first thing they asked. So just for people who don't know what that is, there are three laws of robotics, right? So I wrote these down. So um, a robot may not injure a human being or through inaction, allow a human being to come to harm. Uh, That's the first one. Uh, Two, a robot must obey orders given to it by human beings, except 
where such orders would conflict with the first law. And then the third law is a robot must protect its own existence as long as such protection does not conflict with the first or second law. Mm. Uh, and so their point is basically like, you know, why is the first law broken in mm. Ex Machina? Yeah. Well, of course, Asimov's laws are themselves the product of science fiction. So yeah. they're, not, they're not they're not real laws. No. They're not, <laughs> we they're should not, make that clear. Um, so so and so Asimov wrote those laws uh, down in, in order to make for great science fiction stories. And and all of the science fiction stories, uh, Asimov stories, are um, uh, you know center on the ambiguities and the difficulties of interpreting those those laws or realizing them in actual machines. Mm-hmm. Um, and the kind of often the sort of moral dilemmas, as it were, that the robot is faced with in trying to uphold um, those laws. So, so even if um, even if we did suppose that we wanted to somehow put something like those laws into a into I mean into a I mean it's not relevant to, to robotics today, but if we do want to put them into uh, uh, into a, a, a robot, it would be immensely difficult. So I should take a step back and say, why is it irrelevant to, to robotics today? So of course, let me let me qualify that. Yeah. Of course, there are people who are who want to build autonomous weapons and all kinds of things like that. And 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 you might you might say to yourself, well, I would very much like it if if somebody <laughs> was trying to pay attention to things a bit like Asimov's laws and say, yeah. well, you know, you should you shouldn't build uh, a robot that is capable of killing people. Um, but that's that's a law that the designers and or that would be a, a principle mm-hmm. if we were to have it that the designers uh, and engineers would be uh, would be exercising, not one that the robot itself was exercising. So that's the, the sense in which it's not relevant today because we don't know how to today make an AI that is capable of even comprehending those laws. So that so um, so that's kind of a, the uh, the first point. Um, so, so why doesn't it, so, but okay, but then when we're thinking about the future, of course, mm-hmm. this is in, 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 in Ex Machina. So why not? Uh, well, it would obviously again make a very different story, uh, <laughs> if, uh, if, 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 right. if uh, Asimov's laws were, were, were put into Ava. But, but let's suppose that it was a world where we were minded to put Asimov's laws into Ava. Well, maybe Ava might reason that she is human. You know what is the what is the difference between herself and a human, and uh, maybe she uh, she would reason that uh, that it, that that uh, she shouldn't allow herself to come to harm, mm. and uh, therefore she was justified in what she was doing. Who knows? I mean, it's just a story, right? So yeah. I think we have to remember that it's just a story, and 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 it's actually very important. I I, I think science fiction is really really good at making us think about the issues but at the same time we always have to remember that it that it's that they're just stories that there's a difference between fantasy and reality mm. and i think it's also it is also kind of covered in the movie when um uh nathan and caleb are debating i think he he nathan's criticizing caleb over um going with his like gut reaction and his ego and not in like if he were to think through every logical possibility for yeah. every action he would never do anything right, right which is kind of like directly against all of these laws against which laws, you know like yeah. ava would never do anything if she could harm someone possibly down the road mm. by you know uh burning fossil fuel by being in the helicopter well indeed yeah yeah I, yeah i mean i guess we're all um we're all we all have to confront those sorts of dilemmas all the time um and and, in, and indeed um uh, you know, moral philosophers have got plenty of examples of these kinds of mm. kinds of dilemmas that make it obvious that there's no simple single rule really, you know, is enough by itself. Trolley problems, if you know about mm-hmm. trolley, where the, you know the trolley is heading down the track, mm-hmm. and there are points, and uh, and uh, for some unknown reason, uh, somebody is tied across the tracks and on on uh, one. On it's very fork, cinematic. It's very cinematic, and and on the other fork, three people are tied across the track. Yeah, and the points are currently such that the three people, uh, the trolley is going to go over the three people and kill them. And you are faced with the possibility of changing the points so that the trolley goes down the first track and kills only one person. So what do you do? And and you know, philosophers can can spend entire conferences debating what the answer to this is and thinking of variations and so on and um uh, and that that little problem that mm-hmm. little thought experiment of philip philippa foot's thought experiment there is a is a distillation of of uh, you know much more complex moral dilemmas that exist in the real world <clears throat> absolutely so 
So before we go, um, I, I do want to talk about your your thoughts on broader things. You, you know, obviously you work here. Uh, do we, you we haven't been broad enough. Yeah, no, <laughs> I mean, well, like broader things <laughs> yeah. than Ex Machina. Right. Um, so obviously you're here at DeepMind. You're at Imperial as well, 20% of the time. Yeah. Um, can can you talk a little bit about uh, things you're excited about for the future as far as it relates to what you're working on? Yeah. Um, well, so I've so I've recently got very interested in uh, in deep reinforcement learning. So deep reinforcement learning is is one of those things that DeepMind has made famous, really. So when they published uh, this paper back in 2014 and then the Nature version in 2015 um, about so they published this paper about. Um, a system that could learn to play these retro Atari games completely from scratch. So all of this, all the system sees is just the screen, just the pixels on the screen. It's got no idea what objects are present in the game or anything. It just sees raw pixels and it sees the score. And it has to learn uh, by trial and error mm-hmm. uh, how to get a good score. Um, and they uh, managed to produce this system, which uh, is capable of learning a huge number of of these Atari games completely from scratch and getting, in some cases, superhuman level performance and other cases, human level performance. And in some cases, it wasn't too good uh, at those at the games. And um, so they, I think that opened up a whole new field. And to my mind, that, that, that so that system was called DQN. And to my mind, DQN is, in a sense, the f- one of the very first general intelligences hmm. because it learns completely from scratch. You can throw... A whole variety of problems at it, and it, you know, it doesn't always do that well, but it, it, in many cases, it does. It does pretty well. Yeah. Um, so, so to answer your question, so I've got very interested in this field of deep reinforcement learning, but when I sort of first, uh, you know, long before I joined DeepMind, I first started playing with their DQN system when they made the source code public, and I pretty quickly realized that it's got quite a lot of shortcomings as well as as today's um deep reinforcement learning systems all all have um which is it is very very slow at learning for a start and when you watch it learning you think actually this thing is really stupid because because <laughs> yeah. it, it might get to superhuman performance eventually but my goodness it takes a long time and to do even it just playing space invaders yeah, yeah yeah or even or even pong or something even simpler mm-hmm. than that so it takes an awful long time to to do it whereas a human very quickly is able to work out some general principles. What are the objects? What are the sort of rules? Of the, and you work it out very quickly. And um, so it made me think about my ancient past in classical artificial intelligence, symbolic AI. And it made me realize that there were various ideas from symbolic AI that could be rehabilitated mm. and put into deep reinforcement learning systems in a more modern guise. Mm. And so that's the kind of thing that I'm I'm most interested in right now. Very cool. Yeah, that was actually one of uh, one of my favorite questions from the Kasparov talk today. Someone who was working on Go asked exactly that. Yeah. Like, how can humans compute so quickly? All like they compute what is not relevant to the yes. game and yeah. they can just, they execute the game. Uh, I guess it was chess, right? In, in 50 moves right. rather than a hundred moves. Yeah. Yeah. And it's very much that framing. Yeah. Yeah. That was Torre Torre, who's one of the people on the AlphaGo the, uh, team. Mm-hmm. And, um, and yeah, that's a very deep question. I think that he, he was asking there. Yeah. Yeah. It's fascinating. Um, cool. So if someone wants to learn more about you or, uh, more about the field in general, what would you, what would you recommend? Well, if I want to learn more about me, I can't, think why they would want to but if well, they did they can, they can google my, my name and find my website if they want to learn more about the, the field in general well we're in a very fortunate position of having an awful lot of material out there on the internet these days that people can can find and all kinds of lectures and ted talks and tedx talks and so on and if people want to know uh, a bit more technical detail there are some excellent tutorial mm-hmm. tutorials and uh, about deep learning and so on out there um, that people can find. Um, there are lots of uh, massive MOOCs, you know, massive online open courses. Sure. Um, so there's there's a huge amount of material on the internet out there. Do you have a uh, a budding career in technical advising, or is there Ex Machina two? Uh, <laughs> uh, so so people often ask me about Ex Machina two, which of course is is none of my uh, business. Yeah. But, uh, but uh, whenever I've heard Alex Garland asked about that, he always says he's got no no intention of. Uh, of producing an ex machina too that it was a one-off um uh, as for scientific advising yeah so the uh, so i have been involved in a few other kind of projects like there's a there was a theater project i was involved in that i uh, that i enjoyed with uh, nick Payne, 
um, uh, at the Donwell Warehouse here. What's and, that called? Um, uh, so that was a so this play by Nick Payne was called uh, Elegy, and it's about uh, uh, an elderly uh, couple um, who where one of them uh, has got a dementia-like disease, and it's set also sort of ten minutes into the future. One of them has got a, a dementia-like disease, but techniques have been developed whereby uh, these diseases can be uh, can be cured, mm. but the cost that you have to pay is that you lose a lot of your memories, and um, uh, and so the play really centres on uh, on the, the 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 difficult the difficulties for the mm. partner, knowing that 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 her partner's memories of their first meetings and so on and their love is going to actually sort of vanish, and so it was about that about that, and it was more of a neuroscience kind of kind of stuff. Um, and the, but I've also um, been involved with um, an artistic collective called Random International, okay. and Random International uh, do some amazingly cool stuff. So I highly recommend okay. googling <laughs> them. And so they were famous for this thing called Brain Room. Okay, sure. Um, and uh, uh, at MoMA in New York. Yes, that's right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's toured, but it was in. Oh, MoMA. okay, sure. It was yeah. in New York, indeed. Yeah. Um, so, so the idea there is that as you, so it's so all of their their art is 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 using technology in various kind of interesting ways, and often about how we interact with technology. You know, to make kind of art. You know, so so in Rain Room, you the idea is it's a room with sprinklers on the ceiling, sure. and you walk around in this room, and it's raining everywhere. But there's some clever technology that senses where you are. And you worked on that. No, okay. no, no, I didn't. No, no. I can't. I should finish. Yeah, later. yeah. So, so uh, there's some some clever technology that senses where 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 you are and turns off the sprinklers immediately above your head. So you walk around in this room, um, miraculously never getting wet. So, <laughs> uh, so that's that's one of the things. So they also worked on on this um, uh, uh, amazing sculpture called Fifteen Points, and uh, and this is based on point light displays. So mm-hmm. a point light display is is one of these little displays where on the screen you've just got say fifteen dots, and these fifteen dots move around, and you suddenly you see that it's a person because the fifteen mm. dots are like the elbow joints and the the neck and the head and, and the torso and the knees and so on, and you see these things moving around, and you instantly interpret it as motion. In fact, you can even tell whether the person is running or walking mm. or digging or often whether it's even whether it's a man or a woman just by these fifteen points moving. Um, uh, so they constructed this beautiful sculpture which. Um, has these sort of rods that have little lights on the end, rods and motors. And so it's very much a piece of mechanics, mechanical, th- robotic-like mechanical thing. And uh, and when you just see it stationary, it's just like this weird kind of contraption. But then it starts moving and all the lights on the end. Are, and, and then you suddenly you see there's this person appears walking towards you. Uh, and, I, and I thought that was a wonderful, um, uh, a, a wonderful Example of how we we see, uh, you know, we 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 see someone there when there mm. isn't, and of course that for me that was very interesting because it, it 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 made me think about when we do that with machines, where we often we do maybe you know we think that there's someone at home when there isn't, and um, so so that yeah so so a lot of their art is all about that kind of, those kinds of questions. That's so cool. I I think that's a perfect place to end it, and we'll we'll link up to all their work. As well. Okay, cool. Great. All right. Thanks, Mary. Yeah, sure. Thank you. All right. Thanks for listening. So if you want to watch the video or read the transcript from this episode, you can check out blog.ycombinator.com. And as always, please remember to subscribe and rate the show. Okay. See you next time.